Good. Enjoying the fall-like weather. I get no. I get a few smiles, a few chuckles, and a few people are thinking, "Just give it a month." It's gonna be sloppy and wet, and snow and rain. That's all right. It's great to. Uh, I'm. Uh, I'm actually all smiles for the rain that we've gotten. I know I'm not the only one. Uh, we could use lots of rain and lots of snow, and uh, that helps me out for sure. Well, welcome if this is your first time or first couple of times of being here. <clears throat> We're about a little over halfway through the book of 1 Corinthians. Last week we looked at chapter 8. This week we'll be in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And last week we asked this question, and I was hoping that uh, we would ask this question of ourselves throughout the week, and that is this question, is how valuable are the relationships that you have? How valuable are the relationships that you have? If you're married, how valuable is your spouse? What would you do for your spouse? To what length, to what extreme would you, uh, would you accomplish something on behalf of your, your partner? Uh, if you're not married, uh, apply it to other relationships. Apply it to your kids. What would you do for your kids? Kids, what would you do for your parents? How important are the people in your lives? We'll, <clears throat> we'll know the answer to that question, uh, and it comes out this way. We find that and we discover through life the answer to the question, how valuable are relationships, when our relationships begin to rub against our rights. When the relationships that we have begin to rub against our what we feel is right, what we want to accomplish, or what we think is, you know, good for me, and there's some rub there, there's some tension between our relationships and our, what we perceive as our rights to do as we wish. This is the whole story of chapter 8, 9, and 10, specifically in the book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> then you'll know how important those relationships are and the apostle paul had that experience everywhere he went in fact i would venture to say that most of you if you stop and think about it that you've had those re that that experience you've had those things happen where where you want to accomplish something you want to do something you feel like you have the freedom to do something but there's a relational tension and stress there and then how are you going to walk that out how are you going to accomplish uh keeping and building relationships and how are you going to balance that then how are you going to balance the relationships with your rights in fact we can see really how this broke down for the apostle paul as he began his ministry in corinth for that really we need to flip backwards in our bible don't start in first corinthians chapter 9 actually go to acts chapter 18 acts chapter 18 really gives us kind of the marching orders that the lord has for the apostle paul Follow this, Acts 18, verse 1 says, And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in <coughs> Pontius, who had re recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them, and so he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. 
And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they had opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood is be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing and believed, were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. This part I have highlighted in my notes. Here's the Lord's words for Paul. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. I'll pause right there and say that's, that's the marching orders, right? That's how it's accomplished. Like we can't be kept silent. And we can't operate as Christ followers, especially in the days that we live in. We can't operate in fear. The Lord says, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So the marching orders kind of break down for Paul, and Paul did these things. He built relationships, both Jews and Gentiles. It says there in uh, uh, verse 7 and 8, Justice and Crispus. Paul worked hard physically. He worked hard physically. He built tents. It, that would be equivalent today of building mini homes or motor homes. Like that's what people used when they traveled. They needed a tent. Nobody had an airstream. Nobody had a Gulf Stream. Right? It was slow travel. And you had to stay wherever, as far as you could go that day, and then you needed to pitch a tent. So tents were a big deal. He worked hard physically. And he worked hard also in ministry, building the church, preaching to each one. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks, it says in verse 4. In verse 11, he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He went to both Jews and Gentiles, but he worked hard in ministry to establish a church. And, and God did his part. The results are God's part of it. Look there in verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing the words that Paul had, they believed and they were baptized. So Paul was working hard physically. He was working hard in ministry, building the church. And he worked hard at making future leaders. You see that in verse 5, where he says, When Silas and Timothy, his young protégés, the people that Paul was discipling to be the future leaders of the church, when they got there from Macedonia and joined in this effort to join in this brand new church plant in this heathen, idolatrous city of Corinth, Paul not only was reaching out, but he was reaching right next to him too. And he was building these two young men into future church leaders. He was discipling them. Here's how you do it. Here's how it goes. So that's really the, the uh, backdrop. For a year and a half here, Paul intentionally built relationships and invested in people as he lived on mission for God there in the city of Corinth. Now we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 before we get there. Just want to remind us that last week's emphasis 
in last week's message was to take into consideration those that are around us. Uh, They may have convictions that we don't, or they may have a weaker conscience than we do. Or perhaps you're the person with a weaker conscience and somebody else is the one with a stronger conscience in certain areas of life. Whatever the case, don't knock the other off the wagon in the process of claiming our rights. That was Paul's short and sweet message for chapter 8. But the question remains before we get into chapter 9, because chapter 9 is stuff full of intriguing writing, really. Uh, what about our rights? What about our rights? It's not something that we can avoid the question. We definitely can't avoid the question in our society, in the culture that we live in. What about our rights? Do we have rights before God and before men? How do we handle our rights appropriately? Ultimately, what is our motivation in this area of of trying to balance our rights in our relationships? A couple of valuable questions as we start today. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses these very questions, these issues, kind of three ways. He does it by uh, by talking about his own ministry. He does it by talking about his own ministry first and foremost. He does it by reminding the Corinthian church in this letter, he reminds them of the bigger goal. And he does it by encouraging them to buy into God's plan. So he talks about his own ministry. He talks about the bigger goal that's in play that, that transcends our rights and relationships, really, that's over both of them. And he does it by encouraging the Corinthian church really to buy into God's plan. All right, let's go ahead and read the whole chapter. Then we'll come back and discuss a few of these points. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 says, here's the Apostle Paul, I am, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we, have, <clears throat> do we have no right to eat or drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers in the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man, or does, the law, does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the oxen while it treads out the grain. Is it, not, is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, that this written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partakers of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 
But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that I should, it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with the stewardship. What is my reward then? That, <clears throat> that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law towards God, but under the law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. A real mouthful. A real mouthful. Let's take a look at just three points in the time that we have here. The first one is really the idea to avoid the rights versus relationships trap. I know I've talked a lot about in the last couple of weeks rights and relationships and, and kind of a priority there of relationships, absolutely. But there's a trap that we can get into. We have rights, absolutely. But purpose not to elevate them above the mission. Purpose not to elevate them above the mission. Uh, there were those in Corinth that didn't believe that Paul had the authority that God had given him. There were those that doubted his apostleship. Those that doubted his, his, uh, his relationship with the Lord. Those that doubted his authority. We live in a society that is all of those things. We live in a society that broadly looks at authority as, uh, as something to be despised. In fact, a previous pastor here used to say it this way. He said, those in the authority become the whipping post of the rebellious. That was what Earl Nash was sharing with me one day. He said, those in authority eventually become the whipping post of the rebellious at heart. And that was exactly what was going on here in Corinth. There was those that doubted Paul's authority as an apostle. So Paul asked a series of questions. Actually, in all of chapter 8, <clears throat> there's actually there's 18 questions in the first section. But there's almost a question per verse in the whole chapter. And Paul asked these series of rhetorical questions, really. They were questions to stimulate their thought, to get them to slow down, to consider both who he was uh, and what was going on, what was going on in the relationship that he had with them as a church. In the first 18 questions, there's 18, or first 18 verses, there's 18 questions. 
And his litany of questions are grouped really in these rights category. That's really, he kind of switches gears from talking about relationships, although he'll wrap that up into it. He, <clears throat> he largely in chapter 9 talks about rights. And so his questions are grouped in these quote-unquote rights categories. Uh, the first one is, cha- is verses 1 through 4. He talks about his rights as an apostle. His rights as an apostle. Look there in verse, uh, verse 1 right off the get-go. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Uh, here's the big question. Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? To, be, to, to, to have the office of an apostle, one of the characteristics of an office of an apostle was somebody that spent time physically with Jesus. Paul did that. Paul spent time. He saw the risen Lord. That was all part of his, his conversion uh, experience, was to see and experience the risen Lord. Not only did he see Jesus then, but he also spent time with him uh, as he kind of escaped into the desert there. There's a period of time where Paul takes off just to be essentially discipled by Jesus straightforwardly. But they were questioning his apostleship, so he comes right out and asks the question, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? As if to say, I've shared with you that I have. Did you guys not hear what I said when I was with you for a year and a half? Absolutely. Absolutely, he's an apostle. Are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, was, I, was, you know, was it a figment of your imagination that I spent a year and a half with you? I was there. I was there physically. I was teaching and preaching. I was working amongst you. Not working for you. He was working for the Lord. But he was working physically. He was working hard in ministry as well. For you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat or drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife? All personal questions. So first you have questions about his apostleship. Then you have questions about his personal life. Like is it unlawful? Do, do, do I not have a right to be married, he says? Absolutely has a right. Peter was married. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. So we know that Peter was married. Right? And so... <clears throat> Paul's saying, hey, you guys are trying to hold this standard up and over me. I'll ask you some crazy questions that prove out the rights that I have, and then he'll wrap it back up in a different direction. But he asks some personal questions. He asks some ministry support questions. Verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11. Scan down to verse 8. Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same things also? Here's some Old Testament examples. Some Old Testament examples. For it is written in the law of Moses, verse 9. You shall not muzzle the, an ox while it treads out the grain. The Old Testament law that's saying, hey, when your animal's working for you, don't starve them to death. They, you won't get any... Pr- it's, it's common sense. Like, as a farmer, we know that. You don't put any diesel in the fuel tank, guess what? You don't get a lot of work done. It's the same principle with an ox. You don't put any grain in front of them, you're not going to get any work out of them. So he uses some Old Testament examples in verses 12 through 14. Actually, skip back to, he starts it in verse 9. And then he also has these rights categories about leadership rewards. Leadership rewards. In verse 15, he asks this question. He makes a statement and then asks a question. But I've used none of these rights, nor 
have I written these things that it should be done to me? For it were better for me to die <coughs> than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast, uh, nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is it for me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do it willingly, I have reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with the stewardship. Here's the question. What then is my reward? What then is my reward? How does Paul see his rights? How does Paul see these, these different categories of rights? He's, he sees it this way. He really says it in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. In every chapter of this book, there's a gospel answer to whatever the question is on the table. Whatever category that he's talking about, whether it's marriage, family, whether it's uh, last week talking about issues of food, worship to idols, is it good to eat, is it not good to eat, in the earlier chapters, whatever it is, Paul always circles back to the gospel, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He was willing to do whatever it took to not hinder the gospel of Christ. And if taking his rights, setting his own rights aside, was what had to happen to not hinder the gospel, that's exactly what he was going to do. And he ends this, this particular string of questions with this last one. Verse 18, what is my reward then? And as if to say, what, what is all this going to come to? What's in it for him? What's his reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I not <clears throat> may not abuse my authority in the gospel. When we look at ministry, when we look at kind of the, the, even the modern history of ministry, there's a massive shift in Christianity from this mentality to occupation. I'm not saying that everybody that draws their paycheck from a church is in the wrong. Don't, don't hear that. Not at all. I would say it's kind of parallel, really, to those that, uh, the, the shifts that we see in education at large. Back in the day, education was largely, uh, teachers were largely people that discovered, hey, I'm really gifted at this. I'm really gifted at being able to explain this to these kids. or I'm gifted in, in diagnosing how kids learn. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of gifted in that area. So maybe I should get into education. And they, the people were very gifted, gifted teachers. And what's happened over the last, I don't know, maybe 100 years anyway, is there's a shift in education to being a, a career and there's a lot of people that are in education for the career, not for the love of teaching. And there's a lot of people over the years that have been in ministry, not for the love of the gospel, not for the overwhelming sense that I, that I have to communicate the gospel, but it's an opportunity for a career. And I don't put everybody that's taking a paycheck in ministry in that category. I'm just saying that, that it happens. And Paul's saying he's very, very, very aware that the financial side of it can get in the way. It can get in the way. The right to the financial side of it can get in the way of the relational side 
of connecting with people. That's essentially what he's saying. And he doesn't want to do anything that would hinder that. So that's why he says that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel without charge. Free of charge. Absolutely free of charge. There was a lot of people in that day, as there is in our day, that are peddling something. They're peddling a message. Uh, but they want to make sure that before they give the whole spiel, you know, that you're sending that 1999 via your MasterCard, you know, to this number. Then you'll get the rest of the goods. Paul's saying, hey, that's not the way that we operate in the church. The gospel's free. Absolutely free. He doesn't want to add any charge to it. He doesn't want to abuse his authority in the gospel. He doesn't want to abuse the rights that he has in presenting the gospel. So avoid the rights versus relationship trap. He was so focused on the word that the Lord had given him. And that word was this. It was really simple. I have many people in this city. Sometimes we think about something that God has said to us and it seems like it's, you know, this, you know, four paragraph, you know, document or essay and, and, and we struggle. God communicates really simple. He says, hey, Paul, I got a lot of people in this city. So he was focused. He was focused. He was on to work, working hard at hand, working hard in ministry. Point number two really is this. Uh, the Lord calls us to abandon the unimportant. Abandon the unimportant. The bigger goal here is sharing the gospel of Jesus. This is Paul's singular motive was introducing people to the Lord. Look at verse 19 where he talks about more, uh, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all. In other words, he's saying uh, I, I have all the freedoms that there are in the Lord. My future is secure, absolutely. But I'm making myself a servant so that I can somehow and in some way share the gospel with as many people as I possibly can. And Paul had all kinds of rights for sure, but he set them aside for the sake of the gospel. When we're relational thinkers, uh, we will find the flexibility that comes in verses 19 through 32. Or 22, excuse me. Look at verse 19. I guess I was just in 19. Scan down a little bit to the... Where he says this, And to the Jew I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Those who are without law, as without law, not being without law towards God, but under the law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. And to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. And I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might partake, might be a partaker of it with you. Paul's saying, hey, there's a flexibility that comes with being a Christian. There's a flexibility, there's a responsibility there for sure, but there, that responsibility comes with being flexible in as much as being able to relate with the people that are around you. So for him, being able to talk with people that were still observing all these, many of the Old Testament you know, celebrations and covenants and all of that that went with all that, no problem. He didn't stare down at them. He just found a way to relate with them. 
to those that were Gentiles, he found a way to relate with the Gentiles. He didn't partake in either of the deep side as a, as a general practice. In other words, he, he didn't jump into the idolatry to be able to identify with them on the Gentile side. And he, and he at times would celebrate the feast, but he didn't make it this massive you know, thing, even as a Jew that he was. He just found a way to relate with them and to talk with them and to build relationship with him. He had all kinds of rights in the process, but he, he, didn't, he set those aside for the sake of finding inroads where he says, I've become all things to all men that I might by means, some means, all means, save some. In other words, he was willing to do whatever it took relationally, whatever it took relationally to get to the point where he could have a conversation about who Jesus was. He was willing to do whatever it took relationally to get to the point where, where uh, these guys like Crispus, Justice, and one, where they would see who Jesus was and build relationship, and then he could disciple them. He had Silas and Timothy there as well in the whole process. Because he's in it to win it. Verses 24 through 27 really is a picture of, of Paul's dedication his mindset, his approach to ministry. And God calls us to be all in for the gospel. For sure, the Apostle Paul was. And it's a great reminder for me, it's a great reminder really for all of us to be all in, to be in it to win it. Like, that's why you're a believer. It's not just so you get, you know, some eternity paperwork and you get a rubber stamp. You need to be in it to win it for life, affecting the people that are around you. And, and the same goes for me. The same was true of the Apostle Paul. Read in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. He starts to draw a contrast between the motives, between uh, athletics and ministry. There's a difference. But there can be a similar approach. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. In other words, he's, he's not saying we just jog for no reason, that we're out for a run for no reason, that we're uncertain about what we're doing. Absolutely not. And thus I fight not as one who beats the air. We've all seen pictures, you know, the old shadow boxers. Guys, this is normal. Uh, we've, if you've raised uh, uh, boys in any capacity, sooner or later, you end up kind of squaring off, a little jab, you know, a little hook. Uh, we've done it a couple times. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. I was doing this with a friend of mine when we were kids. And I won't tell you what his name's name is, but his initials are Nathan Carlson. And um, we were just messing around, you know, how you just kind of kids are kind of bobbing and weaving. And all of a sudden, I bobbed and he weaved, and he caught me right on the end of the nose with a jab. Bam! You know, and, uh, and uh, we were both shocked. Because you just, you know, you're thinking about this idea of fighting against the air, so to speak, or the other person's across from you. Anyway, old Nate, he gave me a pretty good... Uh, I didn't bloody my nose, but... Um, I discovered right in that moment that boxing was not my sport. I'll put it that way. And Paul says it this way. He says, uh, thus I fight, but not as one who just beats the air. Right? 
Like in ministry, we can kind of shadow box our way around or we can jog for no reason, we can run for no reason. But that's not what ministry is about. It's not just about going through the motions, going through the activity that God has a purpose in it all. God has a purpose in it all, and he wants us to be in it to win it. So not as one who beats the air. Rather, he describes himself this way. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. See, in in that day, just like in our day, sporting events were a big deal. They were a big deal. Uh, this was especially meaningful to the Corinthians that he would use this type of language because their city was the center for the Isthmus Games. The Isthmus Games in, in ancient Greece was the second biggest sporting event underneath the Games in Athens. Underneath the Games in Athens, the, the Olympics, that they call them. And so Paul often uses these figures from the arena of competition. At least 12 different ones are in the Bible. Uh, in his writings anyway, include examples of runners, boxers, gladiators, chariot racers. Uh, you know, we, win for, we run for the prize, we're looking for the trophy. Uh, his main point, his main point is prepare to win. Is to prepare to win. And, and that's the mentality that, that all of us need to take into ministry. That you need to, that you need to be prepared to win at ministry. And so there is a competitive piece to it in that sense. What am I talking about? What's the com- what, where's the point of competition when it comes to ministry? Is it us against the church in town? Is it us against the, you know, the churches in Chewila and Colville and the, that we're competitive about people? That's not it. Last I read the Bible, we're all on the same page. We're all on the same team. It's not that at all. It's not about stealing per- you know, parishioners from one building to the next. That's just shuffling the deck. The competition is, is between the believers and the unseen forces in the world. That's where the competition point is. It's pilfering people from the, from the position of darkness. That's what we should be about. And I use that word pilfering on purpose. Because we're grabbing one here, we're grabbing one there. We're ministering. We want to be competitive in that sense against the enemy of our souls. There's nothing wrong with that mentality at all. A lot of people have watered down this idea and don't like competition, you know, or they don't let their kids be com- competitive about anything because they just want everybody to get along, you know, that type of mentality. That's not the reality of life. You go into the workplace that way, into the workforce that way, and you got 40 people looking for one job, you better be somewhat competitive in your interview. You better have the right mentality. And the same is true for ministry. The same is true for ministry. We want to be competitive and push back against the forces of darkness, push back against the enemy, and be out there looking for those who we can pilfer. And I'm kind of stuck on this word pilfer for some reason. Looking for those who that are open, that are looking to hear something different. L- looking for those who are those who are looking for the truth. I love this uh, idea here. When I say prepare to win, I was thinking of this idea. At the time of performance. Preparation is over. 
at the time of performance, preparation is, is, is it's in the rearview mirror. So when it's time to go, whatever you're doing, this is a quote, kind of a loose quote out of a book by Condoleezza Rice, who many of us may or may not know, was a tremendous concert pianist. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, who was Secretary of State, uh, professor at Stanford, one of our national leaders. She says this, at the time of performance, preparation is long over. You'll com- <coughs> you will compete in the marketplace of ideas with what you have, not with what you wish you had. That's why it's important to prepare. That's why it's important not just for me to read the Bible, for all of us to be immersed in the Word of God. Because you never know when that time, that time to, to compete for somebody, the time to you know, perform as it were, and I, I don't like that word as far as uh, using it in opportunities to share the gospel, but in a sense, we need to be ready to share the gospel. So in a sense, that's your opportunity to step up to the plate and to talk with someone or to encourage someone. At that point in time, whatever you've done for preparation, is, it is what it is. That's why the preparation side of it is so important, and that's why the Apostle Paul lays it in here at the end of this chapter. The time of, preparation, the time of performance, preparation is over. It's interesting to, that Paul had this very competitive edge about him. Uh, it's the type of it's the type of edge, it's the type of mindset, really, that top-level athletes have uh, <clears throat> that's found here in these verses. Uh, if you do any research, I've listened, and I've, I'm a big sports nut, you guys know that, but top-level athletes will tell you this. Those that have won the World Series, those that have, that have been to the NBA Finals and the Super Bowl many times, they enjoy one thing about their particular sport. You know what it is? They enjoy the grind. That's what they call it in baseball. They enjoy the grind of the everyday mundane. They enjoy the fact that while everybody else is still sipping coffee and eating a donut, they've been in the batting cage for an hour and a half. They love the fact that while everybody else is, is still trying to you know, slap the alarm clock to get it to shut up, they've already been in the gym shooting free throws they love the fact that they can get up every day and go to work and, and do the, the monotonous pieces, if you're a football player, of going over your footwork as a lineman. You're going to talk about unsung heroes. These guys, these monster dudes in the, in the NFL, they spend countless, countless hours literally just doing footwork. Like, it's, it's like a dance. Like I tell my linemen all the time, you guys would do really well if you took ballet. Nobody likes that comment when I look at a bunch of high school boys. They're like, ballet? That's for girls, right? But the reality is, is that the better they are with their footwork, the better they are at their position. The better they are at their position, uh, the more opportunity they have to play. The more opportunity they have to play, the, the, more, the more they get noticed. The more they get noticed, they get on a better team, once you get on a good team, your odds of making a lot of money and making it deep into the playoffs gets pretty broad. So these guys spent countless hours, countless hours doing the most mundane things. They enjoy the grind. They have this type of 
mentality, though they're not all believers, they have this type of mentality that the Apostle Paul talks about in regard to ministry. They just apply it to their particular sport that they enjoy. Apostle Paul says this, Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Be temperate in all things. Temperate in all things that he says there is the idea of self-denial of things that would normally be okay. It's not that you have some conviction that you shouldn't eat that or shouldn't drink this or, or shouldn't go there. That's not it. It's the idea that I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to be temperate in, in how I approach life, how I approach ministry, how I condition myself to minister to somebody. I'm going to take on this idea of self-denial of things that would normally be okay. The, probably the greatest example of that <clears throat> is when we embrace fasting. Food's good. I love food. There's times where we need to self-deny food for the sake of prayer, for the sake of seeking the Lord, for the sake of refreshing uh, our spiritual walk with the Lord. It's not that food is bad. It's the fact that self-denial is better, and it, and it uh, opens us up, in a sense, to hearing the Lord better, to following Him in a better way. Perhaps to be more res- resolute going into making particular decisions, whatever the case is. Paul says of those that prepare for ministry, including himself, is that he needs to be temperate in all things. He says, I discipline my body. Uh, it actually means exactly what I just shared for a story. When he says, I discipline my body, it means it, it, that's kind of a goofy translation, but what it means is I, I strike myself in the eye. That's kind of like the the straightforward uh, understanding of that phrase coming out of the Greek. I strike myself in the eye. Uh, it means I'm, uh, I don't want to let my body lead or lord over my entire life. Now, Paul's not into self-mutilation. Or he's, not into, he's not bipolar, he, you know, schizophrenic or anything. He's just simply making a point. I discipline my body. Or he says, I bring it into subjection. I bring it into subjection. It means to lead about like a, like a slave, really. In other words, he wants his spirit to lead where he's going, not the natural craving or uh, natural draw of the flesh. That's what he's saying. Uh, th- there's times... The flesh says, hey, we need to go sit on the couch for a while. Uh, yesterday was a particularly busy day for me. And as you guys know, and I've kind of inserted some of this story along the way, uh, I preached a message a couple weeks ago, what, three weeks ago on, what's the word I'm thinking of? Contentment. And I shared the story about our, you know, Finding this washer and dryer, should we buy it, should we not buy it? I guess I never said, we bought the washer and dryer. You guys, some of, many of you guys know that already. So we bought the washer and dryer. When we went to pick it up, we discovered one thing that I was really, really adamant when I talked to him on the phone. Is the dryer electric or is it gas? 
Oh no is right. Oh no is really right. So when we br- so when we showed up to get them and I slid the dryer out and I noticed this pipe going to the dryer, I thought, oh, this will be interesting. The dryer was gas; it wasn't electric. We're not set up for gas in our, or never had a gas dryer. And so, we bought them anyway because they're a great set. I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just do the plumbing. <laughs> I'll just make this thing work. And so we did. And uh, then last week, talking about you know, the ideas of of uh, of listening to our conscience and not forsaking our conscience. I was really kind of convicted and riding in my, in my conscience that, you know what, my dear wife really needs this washing machine and dryer. They need to be working. Like, it's getting to be a real pain. And so I spent all day yesterday trying to make these things work, of which I did, with a small gas leak. And we're alive. My parting words to the... To, uh, Michaela was is if you never hear from us again you'll know what happened you know and um, no I we played it safe we just turned the gas off before we went to bed which is probably a smart thing I mean you never know I mean you might have people sneak into your house and just strike a match for no uncertain reason and um, the only way we would find out who was who is if they did a DNA check but at any rate I felt really convicted about that and so By the time last night came rolled around, I was I was thinking about these verses and thinking, yeah, right. Uh, I need to just take a break, and I'm not saying breaks are bad, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't take a break. I was struggling with this particular verse where Paul says, "Bring your body into subjection." Uh, <clears throat> it wasn't working well. Uh, I think I was being led around by us tired old bones. The body's not evil is what I'm saying. Uh, But if we're going to win a spiritual battle, we need to be spiritually fit. That was Paul's sense of writing this. If we're going to win, if we're going to compete for souls as it it is, as it were, if we're going to win at spiritual battles, if we're going to push back against the, the evil that's in our world, if we're going to push back against uh, Satan and his demonic forces, uh, we can't do it in, in, by being spiritually lazy or being spiritually unfit. We have to be fit. We have to be prepared. We have to be disciplined. We have to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, which means that our flesh comes into subjection to that leadership. And here's the goal. The goal is found there in verse 25. The goal is the imperishable crown of eternal life. That's the goal. That's our goal for ourselves, but that's also our goal in our messaging to the people that are around us. Is that they would hear the gospel of Jesus, that they would would see, hey, there's an opportunity. They would hear this idea, there's an opportunity for you to, to participate in winning an imperishable crown. Never fades, never gets dull, never wears out. The imperishable crown of eternal life can, is out there for everybody. So I'm left with just a few questions as the worship team wants to come up. 
And the first question is the one that I asked early on. Who's God, reach, who's God reaching in the city? That was his hope for Corinth. They told Paul, he says, I have many that I want to reach in this city. My question is, is who's God reaching in this city? We don't live in a city, I get it. Who's God reaching in this area? Who is it out there that God is nudging you to share with? Who is it out there in our communities, whether it be communities to the north, of Kettle or Colville or the Addy area, or Chuila, south of Chuila, Valley, Springdale area? Who is it that, that is ripe for the picking, so to speak? Who it is, is it that's out there that you know that's been asking a lot of questions or people that, that are giving you the indication that they're curious about who God is? They're curious about who Jesus is. Who is it that God wants to save in this city, if I can use that word? Are we watching? Are we looking? Are we examining the people around us? Are we building relationships? Are we more concerned with upholding our rights? Are we up more concerned with sharing the gospel? And what will we do for a few? What will we do for a few? You may say just a few, really? Is that, isn't that kind of short-sighted? Aren't we supposed to be saving the masses? But what would you do for a few? Here's the reason I ask it that way. We have a tendency to think if we can't do something for everybody, we won't do it for anybody. And that's backwards thinking biblically. We have a tendency to think that if, that if I can't tell everybody or if I can't give everybody something, then I just won't give anybody anything because I don't want anybody to think it's unfair. The right way to think about it is do for one what you wish you could do for everybody. Just start with that. Do for one what you wish you could do for everybody what would we do to save a few see the word few is really a jesus word it's really a jesus word matthew 7 verse 13 and 14 jesus says this enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction that's where everybody's going and there's many who will go in by it but narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few, there are few who find it. We don't know who's who. We don't know which people back then, the first century, God was seeing as he looked down on the city of Corinth and saying, there's one, there's one, there's one. We don't know who in the Stevens County area, unsaved, that's out there, that God's saying, well, there's, there, there's one. There's a couple. There's a couple that just moved in from the west side for sure. <laughs> if you just moved in from the west side, I should probably retract that statement. But the reality, it's just a little levity. The reality is, is that we have unseen, unsaved people all around us. In fact, I'll ante up on my previous statement and say, we have a lot of unsaved people that grew up right here that are multi-generational Stevens County people, and here's their mentality. They believe because they're a good moral person that they're good to go. It's actually probably harder to convert those people than it is somebody that's moved in from somewhere else. So it's a taller task. It's a more real issue. 
it's a harder nut to crack. But what would you do just to win a few? What would you do to win a few? What's God's perspective? And are we looking at the people around us with God's goggles? Are we examining? Are we witnessing? Are we being real about our faith? Are we being transparent about who Jesus is? Are we being transparent about our lives, sharing our own story with people in hopes that they would catch just a bit? So we have a tendency to not say anything to just one or two, the things that we wish we could tell everybody. We need to be able to tell one or two We need to be able to share with a few that God is looking down on saying, there's some in the city. There's somebody there in Addy. There's somebody there in Chewila. Narrow is that gate. And difficult is the way which leads to life. There's few, few who find it. Let's worship the Lord as we close out. Daniel will close us in prayer. Let's encourage all of us to read through Read through. Take a look at how Paul, go back through if you have to, but take a look at how Paul uh, states his rights but doesn't elevate his rights over an opportunity to share the gospel with people. Definitely has them. Definitely is solid in understanding who God's created him to be. But he doesn't elevate those rights, even his right as an apostle. He doesn't elevate those over the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody. To share Jesus with the people who need him in the moment. Let's worship together.